Take your seats, ladies. Class is in session. Welcome to the Friday Finishing School, where we believe that culture and an appreciation for the classical is foundational in a life lived in pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. In this class, the only test is one of taste, and the only notes are the ones being played. But make no mistake, this sort of education will lift your spirits and elevate your everyday life in a way that a formal syllabus never could. This season, we're diving into the art, music, and poetry of the Baroque period, which began around the year 1600 and continued up until 1750. It was a time when the upper and middle classes became increasingly more comfortable, and art, though still strongly tied to religious influence, began to branch out to explore different forms and muses. Artistically, Baroque is an elaborate and dynamic style which is recognizable by its richness, drama, tension, and grandeur. It's here in history that we meet cultural giants such as Bach, Vivaldi, Caravaggio, Cervantes, and Shakespeare. It's a period of genius that persists to today. So let's begin. Today's lesson is on Pachelbel's Canon in D. It's hard to imagine another piece of Baroque music that has enjoyed quite the meteoric rise and fall over such a short period as Pachelbel's Canon in D. What is most interesting is that this rise and fall didn't happen at all when it was written, but it happened over 300 years later. Johann Pachelbel was born in Nuremberg, Germany in 1653. The young Pachelbel demonstrated exceptional musical ability under the tutelage of several respected founders of the Nuremberg musical tradition. Trained principally as an organist, Johann Pachelbel was employed as the deputy organist at St. Stephen Cathedral in Vienna. Having traveled from Germany to Vienna to live amongst the many cosmopolitan composers who were living and working there, and then later he returned to Germany to become the court organist for the Duke of Saxe-Eisenach. Moving in 1678 to Erfurt, Pachelbel formed friendships with many members of the Bach family. Yes, that Bach family. And he stayed at Erfurt for 12 years. A devout Lutheran, Pachelbel wrote church music, and like many composers, he wrote one big piece every year to demonstrate his skill and growth as a composer. Though Lutheran, his music was influenced heavily by Catholicism. In 1694, he had moved on from Erfurt and wasn't really able to settle anywhere for any great length of time, but it was believed that he was one of several composers asked to contribute wedding music for the wedding of one of his former pupils, Johann Christoph Bach. And it is likely that he attended that wedding, and if he did, it would have been then that he had met the nine-year-old Johann Sebastian Bach. Pachelbel was one of the last composers of the Middle Baroque period, 
and while he was a very respected organist and composer, it is likely that he didn't have any great influence over some of the more popular composers of that period, namely Handel, Scarlatti, or Telemann. However, it is very likely that his influence did hold sway in the Bach family, considering that his pupil, Johann Christoph, was the older brother of Johann Sebastian Bach. Two of Pachelbel's sons became composers, with one, Charles Theodore, becoming one of the first European composers to settle in America, so it can be reasonably suggested that Pachelbel's influence through his son can be heard in early American church music. Known during his lifetime almost exclusively for his organ music, it is fascinating that we all know him for this simple violin piece that was pretty much unknown for over 300 years. Okay, so now let's talk about the three things that we think you should know in order to start forming your own opinions on the piece. And so, Lindsay, what is your first thing that we should know about this uh, Pachelbel's Canon in D? Well, as I just alluded to, this piece was unknown. And then it shot to massive popularity. And now it's waning again. And so I think this is the first thing that we should really discuss. No one knows exactly when or why the canon in D was written. The oldest surviving manuscript of this piece, known again as canon in D or canon and gig <laughs> for three violins and basso continuo, is from the 19th century. However, it is suggested that Johann Pachelbel composed this piece sometime between 1680 and 1706. One of the most popular theories, popular because it does make for a good story, it goes back to that wedding story. And this is especially, I think it, this really took off because of our modern ears and our connection to this piece being modern weddings. But the story is that Pachelbel composed this piece exclusively for the wedding of Bach's older brother, Johann Christoph. While we do know that Pachelbel did indeed contribute music to this wedding, there is no evidence that the canon in D was part of his contribution. The canon in D slipped quietly into obscurity until 1919, when music scholar Gustav Beckmann included the score in his article on Pachelbel's chamber music. So despite this renewed interest in the piece, it didn't really cause a ripple in the music scene until 1968, when Jean-Francois Payard's chamber orchestra recorded the piece. Payard's influence on the canon in D took the piece in a more romantic direction, playing it significantly slower than it was written. Two years later, in 1970, a classical music station in San Francisco started playing this Payard recording, and thus started its meteoric rise to fame, first in California and then across the U.S. The canon in D started showing up on albums that featured collections of famous Baroque pieces, my favorite being an album called Go for Baroque. <laughs> And then it reached its greatest audience ever when it was used as the opening theme music in the Oscar-winning Best Picture for 1980, Ordinary People, which starred Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore. We will talk later about how the canon in D became arguably the most popular wedding song for nearly 25 years, but for now we will look at its current diminishing popularity, as sadly its overuse has caused many listeners and many young brides to become a little, well, jaded was how one article put it about this beautiful song. So where does the canon in D stand now? Very few classical songs are recognizable on such a large scale. 
It is part of most relaxing classical music playlists, and it is played by many of the touring orchestras as part of their Christmas concerts. And it can be hummed by most people. This is one of the very reasons that it became so prolific as a wedding song. With most people now not knowing much about classical music and the need to then choose something classical to walk up the aisle to, it quickly became the go-to, which is not to say that it isn't an exquisitely beautiful piece of music, which does tug on the heartstrings of those who hear it for the first time. Well, even the first five or 10 or 20 times. But how about now? According to professional musicians, this piece has quickly become one of the most hated pieces to play. Cellists especially feel this way. Cellists hate it because it's, well, too simple for them. There is no variation in their repeating bass line. The same eight notes are played over and over again. It is so simple that cellists just learning the instrument can master it very quickly. Now, what about the fact that its chord progression can be heard in many pieces of popular music today? From Green Day to Oasis and even Coolio, the theme is there, and it rubs serious musicians, or perhaps musicians that take themselves pretty seriously, the wrong way. There's a popular YouTube video that features comedian Rob Paravonian called The Pachelbel Rant. While playing the bass line as chords on his guitar, he rants about his experiences as a cellist playing the canon in D and how he counted the amount of times he played those repeating eight quarter notes, and it was 54 times. He suggested that Pachelbel had his heart broken by a cellist and then went on forever to write terrible music for cellists. It is a funny bit. But he goes on to demonstrate on the guitar just how far-reaching this canon is as he launches into popular songs, drawing out the melody from the canon in D from Aerosmith and that popular graduation song by the one-hit wonder Vitamin C. So sadly, now it is overplayed and often not played very well, and that's how we hear it. And it has eclipsed many other pieces from that era that are sometimes better and deserve, well, more attention. So perhaps like My Heart Will Go On or I Will Always Love You, Pachelbel's Canon and D just might need a little break from the wedding aisles for the time being. Mm-hmm. I love that Pachelbel rant. That that was basically my education in Pachelbel's Canon and D until we started researching for this episode. <laughs> That's all I knew about it. <laughs> and that was it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's such a good example of how far reaching it is. And there's a music critic on YouTube that I was watching talking about this piece. And uh, they were saying that there is a reason why modern pop music finds it so easy to find commonalities with this canon in D. Like in both instances with modern pop music and the canon in D, they're often like easy melodies, it's catchy, very easily identifiable. And what I found really interesting, it's very direct and to the point. So it's not like a subtle piece. Um, the melody is right there. The harmonies are right there, yeah. right? And it yeah. repeats to the end, <laughs> often, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> Um, and, and so like that is is also one of the main reasons why it's so identifiable in pop culture. But I think you're right when you're uh, starting to talk about the weddings that I think today we would probably most instantly recognize it as one of the processional marches for weddings. My own wedding procession. I walked in for with Pachelbel's Canon in D. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, let's look at why the song became so popular as a wedding song. Um, so this is the second thing that we actually think is is so interesting about this piece mm-hmm. is just really how, you know, starting in the late 80s, and I would I would venture to guess for about 25 
almost 30 years, it has been pretty much the go-to song uh, for most brides. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is it is beautiful. It really is, right? The flip side of the arguments that we made up above for its, you know, simplicity and accessibility um, and some of the musicians maybe not liking it for those reasons Mm -hmm. is also the very same thing that makes it so beautiful. Um, there is a thread on Reddit about the song and many, and I would assume that they're young people because it's Reddit. So I just picture them to be like 22 (laughs) on Reddit, but many people were complaining about the song. And one person commented, you're a cellist, aren't you? (laughs) To the people who are complaining. And so, you know, as we've already determined, cellists don't like it, but the truth is many, many, many people do. Mm -hmm. Now, Personally, I feel the same way about the song as I did about Oprah's book club when it launched. I can see why this song is popular and what is good in it. Just like I could see why the books on Oprah's book club, um, the books she has selected are great novels. But it's so mainstream that I usually back away from stuff like that. But at the same time, it's an entry point to classical music. And if it's getting people listening to classical music who might not otherwise listen to it, then I'm all for it. It is a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. There was a music analyst who was saying that there are three elements really of music that make it beautiful. And those three things are simplicity, melody, and repetition. And he was (laughs) using the canon in D. He's like, this is one song that follows this recipe to perfection. It's simple, Mm. it's melodious, and you repeat it. And so, yeah, if you were using a formula here to determine beautiful music, there really is no better case study than Pachelbel. Absolutely. Now in 1981, there was the wedding to end all weddings. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a reference to World War One oh. because I'm a nerd. Um, but it was of <laughs> course the wedding of the century, Lady Diana Spencer to Prince Charles. Now, they did not use Pachelbel's Canon in D as their processional song. They chose the Prince of Denmark's March, which is better known as Trumpet Voluntary, which I chose for my wedding, actually. Um, but being another Baroque song, it sparked a renewed interest in Baroque music at that time, perking up the ears of young brides everywhere. So this renewed interest in Baroque and chamber music combined with the popularity of the film Ordinary People sparked within these brides the notion of abandoning the previously popular walking up the aisle music like the wedding chorus, which was the tune of Here Comes the Bride (laughs) from Wagner or Mendelssohn's Wedding March. They abandoned them for something not as Tada-ish, which is what Susanna Clark described, um, the trumpet voluntary. She's a Harvard music professor. And I personally love Tada-ish, so that's why I went with the trumpet voluntary. <laughs> um, professor Clark goes on to say, quote, it feels timeless, the canon in D, because there is no text, so it becomes meaningful for every individual or pair. The opera that Wagner's wedding chorus comes from has words, and I can assure you that they are not Here Comes the Bride all dressed in white. (laughs) So having something as simple and as beautiful as the canon in D without having a connection to the original text, there was no words, right? Mm -hmm. Or having then to change the words means that it really can, as Professor Clark suggested, become adaptable for every bride and groom um, who are drawn to the the melody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love this. And there's also a theory that, you know, the music itself is perfect for weddings because it represents so much about what we believe about true love or marriage, 
right? It has to do with like the steadiness of the piece I was reading. So as the song progresses, it adds layers one at a time to introduce new notes that are woven right into those bass chords, the cellist parts, basically. Uh, Mm -hmm. And these new harmonies add new interest and they heighten the passion of the piece, but they still remain committed to that bass line. They don't stray from it, much like the sentiment of marriage and how year after year you add more and more layers to your relationship, but you still both remain committed to that bass line of your wedding day, which I loved that connection. Oh, I love that too. That is so romantic, right? So many layers. Yeah, it (laughs) is romantic. And then just from a technical standpoint, Mm -hmm. one of the neat things about this piece is that you can pull 20 seconds out and you can pull four minutes out, right? It really works to pull whatever length of time you need out of it uh, so that you can walk up the aisle. This is not an easy task when you look at other more traditional wedding marches. You can't just pull out a small section and have it stand well on its own, but you really can do that with this piece. Even just a few bars can be make a beautiful statement for the bride walking down the aisle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's said that the cellist often keeps an eye on the procession and he's the one that signals to stop playing once the bride reaches the oh. altar. I suppose it's because he has such an easy part to play. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what's funny is that um, this piece is really like awful for cellists in general, but our very mm-hmm. first Friday finishing school was box cello suite, which was all about the <laughs> yes. cellist. So we're all about equal opportunity here, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. And you know what's funny about that piece? So when I Googled, you know, information about this, there's a lot of um about wedding music in particular. A lot of the headlines say something funny like songs for your wedding beyond Pacabell's canon. <laughs> and do you know what song they recommend? Box cello suite. <laughs> um box cello suite, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that brings us to the third and final thing that we should know about this Pacabell's canon in D piece. So what is that last piece of the puzzle, Lindsay? Well, we need to finally look at the composition of this piece. Let's talk again about beauty and simplicity. The canon in D is written in the round. And I think that almost all of us probably first learned about this type of music in kindergarten when our teachers had half the class singing row 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 your boat and then the other half comes in from the beginning also singing row 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 your boat and then the voices go round and round so simple that even a kindergartner can grasp the concept yet also beautiful Mm -hmm. even in row 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 your boat We had to sing that song in the round in Latin when I was in Latin class in university. And I still remember ram, 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 gelante unequa. A round is also called a perpetual canon. In this style of music, a minimum of three voices sing exactly the same melody in unison and could, in theory, continue on indefinitely kind of like marriage, right? Mm. Like that's what's so neat about that theme as well. Each voice, however, starts at different times. And so just like what we did with Row, Row, Row Your Boat, the starting point of each voice is at a moment when the voices would fit harmoniously together. The earliest rounds date back to the 12th century, and these were often pub songs, easy to sing while slinging back some ale. (laughs) Other examples are Frere Jacques and Three Blind Mice. A contemporary example is God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Now, the canon in music is a compositional technique that has a melody being played or sung, an initial melody called the leader or dukes, and then an imitative melody that comes in in different voices. 
The new voice can either be sung or played in unison or at a different pitch. The original direction of the melody can also be reversed by the later voices that follow the leader. The tune is read backwards, which is called retrograde. The tune can also move in the opposite direction, which is called mirror, or it can do both, which is called retrograde mirror. And that is too much for my brain right now. (laughs) In the 15th century, the canon became a unifying device of music written for the Catholic Mass. Canons also occur in folk music. And I think this is cool. The musicians have long worked jokes into canons so that you catch the joke as the melodies are being intertwined. Mm. And Michelle, this has opened up a whole new rabbit hole for me. No so kidding. I know what I'm doing when I feel when we finish recording today. Well, yeah, now I want to know what the joke is. I want to be in on the joke. I always want mm-hmm, to be part of mm-hmm. the thing. Yeah. <laughs> And with the resurgence of the unexpected resurgence of sea shanties, right, oh all goodness, among yes. over social media, I'm like, I think rounds, maybe not in the same compositional style, but it has that same pub feel to them, mm-hmm. right? So I think you and I, we we launch rounds back in, you know, maybe overtaking sea shanties. Oh my goodness. We're going to bring back canon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I can't leave it without throwing the cellist something right? (laughs) We need to throw them a bone here. And Mm -hmm. one piece of information that I found really interesting about the composition is that ground bass line that repeats the same notes over and over, but always Mm -hmm. lands back on the dominant, which is the key of D, right? So the dominant in Mm -hmm. this piece is D. And the bass line always ends there, which creates a real sense of suspense, like there's more music Mm -hmm. to come after that. And I think this makes sense if you listen to the piece and you try to imagine it with the violin parts, where it's Mm -hmm. dancing all around up there in the treble clef. If you took out the bass line, and you were just left with the dancing around, it would be rather a sporadic piece. Like, I think Mm -hmm. the bass line grounds it in a sort of drama that makes this piece so rich and what I believe to be the enduring quality of it in general. Um, When I played this song on the piano, which I have many, many times, I love just isolating the left hand, Mm -hmm. the bass line. If, even though it's those simple notes, you're right. There is something I find actually very mesmerizing yes. about that bass line. And so, yeah, I'll often just play that multiple times um, just to warm myself up before I start doing the melody with the right hand. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, we're not cellists, so we can't speak for them. But <laughs> yeah, we we have a fondness for that simple bass line. Mm-hmm. I think what makes this song so timeless and enduring, besides all the above mentioned things that we've said here in this episode, is that it really hits with everybody in a myriad of different ways. So on the one hand, it is romantic, and we can see how people have caught on to that through its popularity in weddings. But it's also kind of mathematical in a way in its approach with repetition and repeating the same thing over and over again with equal beats and measured patterns all throughout the piece. And so when we talk about Pachelbel's canon in D rising in popularity and then subsequently waning, I don't think that we've seen the end of Pachelbel's canon in D and I think the world and the future generations of music to come are far better for that. And so now, ladies, it's your turn. Here is your homework. If you haven't already, please find a version of Pachelbel's Canon in D to study, listen to, and enjoy. Next, if you enjoyed this episode of the Friday Finishing School and would like to hear more, you can find more information on Patreon 
by searching for The Modern Lady Podcast on Patreon.com. And consider becoming one of our patrons so that for only $5 a month, you can join us in continuing the discussions on classical art, music, and poetry. Finally, be sure to share this piece and your newfound appreciation for it in your little corner of the world. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome! The Friday Finishing School is a sister podcast to our weekly free show called The Modern Lady Podcast, where we discuss a wide variety of topics for all women in all seasons of life. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at The Modern Lady Podcast, and tune in every Tuesday on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. That concludes today's lesson here at the Modern Ladies Friday Finishing School. We'll see you again soon. Class dismissed. <laughs>